0: I told Mr. Rose the problem with the pipes this morning. They were going bang, bang, bangety bang, 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 bang. Yeah, the whole bathroom could have exploded. Four hundred seventy-one bucks. Okay, I'm not going to pay for unauthorized repairs. I did the work, my friend. I can rip the pipes out of the wall. Я ведь нахер это вырвать могу из стены. What? Я нахер это вырвать могу. I don't know. I don't know, know what you're saying. Do it. Do it. You do it. You do it. You want to rip him out? You Alex. Rip him
1: out. What? Welcome back to You Know What with your host, You Know Who, and to the first of hopefully many episodes revisiting a previous guest's journey through and out of graduate school. A whopping 63 weeks ago, we were graced by the presence of Austin Lecuyer, who was smack in the middle of his master's research at the time. That was episode 21, and this is episode 75 of Abstract. Austin, it is great to have you back on the show once again. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm happy to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, reaching out and for doing this. Awesome. Like I said, this is the first time we're doing this. Very excited to have you inaugurate our first ever revisiting episode. So tell me a bit about what you got up to towards the end of your research and what you were working on.
0: Yeah, so just as a little recap, my research was in turbulence. So I was looking at turbulent flow inside of a wind tunnel that uh, I helped build. And the the whole idea is there's a a grid of small fans. So you can picture like a checkerboard of fans just arranged in like a plane, a blowing air. So instead of using one large fan, we used a bunch of smaller ones. Hmm. And we just wanted to look at what kind of turbulence we were able to create in this wind tunnel. So throughout my research, I learned different measurement techniques like hot wire anemometry to look at the velocity signal produced in the wind tunnel at different locations and kind of did what you would normally see as a turbulence analysis done on this wind tunnel for the uh, development of the flow as you move farther away from the fans. And uh, overall, it it went pretty smoothly. And I'm happy to be uh, here talking to you about it today.
1: I like that your ride through the Masters was smooth while all of the airflows in it were not. <laughs> that's a nice that's a nice juxtaposition. I, I have to ask though, why a checkerboard orientation of fans?
0: Yeah, well, the the whole idea was just to use the smaller fans. So they're small little computer fans. If you have a desktop PC, mm. it's a very similar size to what would be uh, cooling that for you. So we just put them all in a plane. And the reason why I use a checkerboard pattern as an example is because I had them arranged as a board. Like you can p- picture like a, a vertical board. And the reason why I say it's in a checkerboard pattern because uh, I would give the fan wall two different signals. Mm-hmm. So if you think of that checkerboard pattern, the light squares would get uh, signal one, and the dark squares would get signal two. So you had the each adjacent fan spinning at a different speed. Mm-hmm. And to get a bit more into it, like I would increase the difference of magnitude of those two signals meaning, you know, the dark fan was spinning a little bit faster than the light fan. As I increased that difference in magnitude, I saw a increase in the energy of the flow being produced and an increase in some of the length scales. And uh, it changed the way that the turbulence developed a little bit too. So that was quite interesting. So That
1: is interesting. I, I just wonder how that maps onto reality. I can't really picture scenarios maybe in nature where you would have this checkerboard orientation of fans, were you trying to mimic a natural setting or were you specifically trying to create this artificial one for purely like methodological reasons?
0: Yeah, so that's, that's that's a really good question. So in nature, when we look at the atmosphere, the turbulence produced in the atmosphere has a lot of energy and not to get too technical, the length scale of the turbulence is quite high. So you have really, really large length scales at high energy. So what we wanted to do was try to mimic those large length scales and get as much energy out of it as we could. And we found that by increasing the magnitude between adjacent fans, you know, if you think one fan gives you a velocity of like five meters per second and one fan gives you a velocity of like one meter per second, just having that change gave us more energy and a larger scale than just all of the fans blowing at the mm-hmm. same speed like let's say uh, an average of one and five so so let's say it was at three meters per second we saw more energy and uh larger length scale than uh interesting in that case yeah okay there's an
1: interplay there between the two speeds where kind of like one plus one doesn't equal two in this case you got some bonus energy, energy. exactly
0: yeah you got like bonus. yeah that's a great way to put it yeah uh, you got bonus, bonus energy, energy out of but it.
1: this isn't the foundation of a perpetual motion machine is it i <laughs> very far from it. <laughs> okay, good. Just want to make sure we're not talking sci-fi here.
0: No, no, no. It's compared to what it would have been at the uh, uniform velocity.
1: Cool. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, so for, for anybody who hasn't checked out episode 21 yet, please do feel free to go back and learn a whole lot more about Austin's research throughout. Today, we're really trying to get a sense of the transition through the end phase and also out of academia into the working world. So right now, Austin, I'm under the impression you have a job. I do, yes. You are employed. Congratulations. You did it. Thank you very much. (laughs) That was the goal of the whole degree, wasn't it? (laughs) Right. You would hope so, unless the point is to continue into a PhD, in which case I'd be equally happy for you for continuing if that's what you wanted.
0: But then after the PhD, you'd want to be a
1: prof, which is a job. (laughs) Right. It's true. The ultimate goal is is to pull in some cash and have a career ahead of you. So Tell me a bit about that transition. How did that go for you, Coming, kind of wrapping things up with your thesis and then moving into the working world?
0: Yeah, so it, uh, like just to give some context, I'm working at an engineering consulting firm, mm-hmm. so I track all of my hours, and it wasn't exactly the field I would thought I'd go into, but I'm, quite a, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I'm learning a lot about construction and how that sort of thing works, so I'm doing like uh, the engineering drawings for construction projects. That's what I'm helping with, and I'm working mm-hmm. towards my professional engineering certification. I've noticed a bit of a difference between academia and working life, as uh, I'm sure a lot of people do. Industry is a lot faster paced. You know, you have a lot more smaller projects on the go at any one time, whereas a thesis mm-hmm. is like one massive project with a million sub projects. So every day I'm kind of doing something different and uh, learning new skills. So it's mm-hmm. a bit more fast pace. And an example that I have for that is when I did the executive summary of my thesis, I went over it quite a few times with my supervisor. We went back and forth just to make sure that this executive summary, the abstract of my thesis was, you know, really well done. My first or second week on the job, they were looking for things for me to do. You know, I'm the new guy. So they, they said, Oh, write an executive summary for, for this. So I, I look at it and I take like maybe two or three hours and like write it really, really nice. And I like want to impress them, right? Because it's my first day, uh, mm-hmm. like first or second week. Fair so yeah. I give it to my boss for feedback and I'm like, hey, I'll change anything. This is just a rough draft. I'm thinking maybe one or two more drafts and it'll be done. 20 minutes later, I see an email sent out to the client. I'm in CC and what I wrote is a text with no changes whatsoever. And then I get like <laughs> yeah. a direct message from my boss saying, yeah, it was good. Here's more work.
1: (laughs) You know what, though? That's actually really nice that your boss just trusts you. And I mean, hopefully your boss actually read through what you wrote and doesn't just trust you implicitly because you might not get the feedback that you might have wanted.
0: Yeah, it was more just like, wow, this does not really happen in academia. You know, like every word that you put out is like really well placed and not to say that the writing that I did for the job wasn't, but it's, uh, it was just like a, a shift, you know, after being so used to revision after revision from completing the thesis.
1: Do you think the amount of revision in a master's degree is like a normal amount and the amount in your job is a below normal amount? Or do you think that normal may be somewhere in between?
0: I mean, I think it's hard to say, right? Just because it varies supervisor to supervisor. And I know that just talking with some of my peers, like different supervisors had different levels of involvement with the editing. My supervisor used to be the editor of his university's newspaper. So maybe my experience with editing with him was a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. Like maybe he's just used to it. So he does it a bit more. Mm -hmm. But just from the methodology of writing a thesis, you have it peer reviewed before you submit, right? Like you in academia, it's very common practice to submit something, get comments on it, revise it and resubmit it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean?
1: Yeah, this seems to be more of a culture of perfectionism.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, a culture of, oh, whatever you put out is going to be there forever. You know, you <laughs> can, in 10 years, you can go and search up my name in the McGill archives and find my thesis and it will be there. Whereas right. this random thing that I wrote for my boss for this client, they might not be our client in a year. So I feel like That's kind of the shift. Like this was just for like a small job. Like this is just a drop in the bucket. The uh, the thing that I wrote at at work. So you, it's it goes back to what I said. You have a lot more small projects that kind of you have to make sure that you are producing quality work because you don't really have the time to go back and revise. You know, like once it's done, it's done.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah, I guess it it just it just lends the fact that your thesis is not an email. That's also true, yes. Uh, thankfully, you don't spend two years on an, a really nice email, but rather you get something, like you said, that is immortalized in the library. Exactly.
0: The, the most beautiful email I've ever seen. Yeah. Sometimes I,
1: I'll admit I spend too much time drafting an email when I realize that people spend you know probably a fraction of the amount of time reading it and thinking yeah. about it than I do putting into it. So sometimes it's nice to move on. Are you, are you appreciating that transition towards maybe a bit more laid back supervision? Yes
0: and no. I mean, you kind of pick and choose where you want to spend your time revising stuff. If I worked on some drawings and they're wrong, well, the drawing said to put the pipe there. If you have to put the pipe somewhere else, that costs someone real money and it doesn't reflect well on you. So I'd rather spend the time revising that than spending, you know, an extra hour making sure I don't have a typo in this random uh-huh. Exactly a summary that I, I've been talking about.
1: Right. It's got to be a little more selective with where you're putting that extra time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's uh, a better use of your time overall. You know, not everything needs to be perfect.
1: Yeah. So you're doing drawings now that involve piping. Could you maybe z- zoom out here a little?
0: Yeah. So um, the company that I work for does mechanical elect- electrical plumbing, MEP. So <laughs> if you wanted to build a brand new building and it was commercial or medical or whatever, You'd come to our company. We have different divisions for the different sectors. You know, mm-hmm. com- I'm in the commercial team, but we also have the medical team. If they're building a hospital and then you have to make sure that the plumbing that you lay or the HVAC that you put in is all up to code and it's, you know, sufficiently large and it's able to accommodate all the occupants of the building. You have to make sure yeah. it complies with the building code and there, there's a lot more that goes into it than you think. At first, I'm like, what? We're just going to, you know, put a couple of pipes uh, to the sink <laughs> and uh, call it a day, but. There's a bit, but there's a little bit more yeah. than that. You know what I 8, mean? 8,000 <laughs>
1: sinks later, you're like, okay, geez, I got to optimize <laughs> where these pipes are going, or else the whole building's just going to be pipes from floor to ceiling.
0: <laughs> what do you mean you don't want the pipe in the middle of the hallway? It fits perfectly yeah. there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I find with behind the scenes work like that, like things that are just inside walls, we have a very poor sense of, like the average person has a very poor sense of what actually goes into it. And we just wake yeah. up and our toilet's not overflowing and our rooms are heated correctly and we just go about our day. And only when these things break down, do we start complaining and recognizing yeah. that they're fallible systems.
0: Yeah. And the, uh, the metric that you judge whether or not you did a good job with is if you don't notice it at all, you did a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: There's a certain element of that in, in art I find. And maybe you, know, do you also see the, the, the artistic side of what you do in terms of drafting and, and creating these drawings. Like sometimes when design is done really well, it's, it's just seamless.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, for it to look good on the drawing, work in reality, and for it to be e- easily legible, the, it's not just do step A, B, and C. Like, you really have to move things around. And I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's an art, but it's definitely a skill that you have to acquire.
1: I'm sure there are people who, who treat it more artistically. Maybe other people treat it more functionally. You, you, maybe mm-hmm. you, you see yourself more on that functional side with your intensive engineering background. How many years did you spend <laughs> studying engineering? Seven. Okay, yeah, that's enough. Like, that's enough. <laughs> that's like a third of my life, maybe a little bit less, but that's crazy. Quart- it's a quarter of my life now. Quarter. Wow, amazing. That that is, that is quite something. It, it's going to become a an, an increasingly small part of your life, but that's true. you'll remember it for years to come, at least I hope.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'll look back on it fondly, like for to reflect back on the undergrad and then like, the, you know, the interns and all of the things that I did in undergrad and then kind of focusing on the masters and really and then the whole experience with doing a master's in COVID, like, I'm not going to forget that. That was uh, quite the experience.
1: When COVID started, I was in one master's that I withdrew from, took some time off, and now I'm in a different master's. So kind of having my feet in those two different pools has been interesting as well. And Crazy, I'm sure everybody yeah. else has had their own unique experience with it. Now that you're finished the master's, congratulations again, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> looking looking back on it, maybe I know it's, it's still pretty pretty fresh, but just to ask pretty bluntly, like, was it worth it?
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think about that a lot. So for, for any other engineers out there, you probably realize you don't really need a master's to do the work or the type of work that I'm doing. But my goal in the degree was to get, like, I wanted a PENG after it.
1: What's a PENG?
0: Oh, sorry. Whenever I say PENG, it's the professional engineering license. So if you put PENG after your name, you're a professional engineer. And you have to do so many years of experience in industry to get that after getting a degree from an accredited university. So McGill is an accredited un- university. That's where I went. Mm-hmm. So I, I did step one. Now I have to get the experience and then I can get my, uh, my permit, like my license. And then I having that permit allows you to stamp drawings. So. When you say "yeah, stamp and approved by this engineer," you need to be um, a professional engineer. You have to have that by your name. So
1: I love when you like when life requires you to do a whole bunch of work, and then at the end you just get the ability to do one tiny trivial thing. Yeah, <laughs> put exactly. On a piece of paper, crazy.
0: But it's what that stamp means. It means I checked through it, and if anything's wrong with it, it's my fault.
1: Okay, so there's a lot of responsibility and accountability that comes with you that. You
0: don't just stamp stuff. Like it's a really a big uh, big responsibility when you do that. Yeah. Wow.
1: Heavy lies the stamp.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. so back to whether or not it's worth it. Sorry, I went on a little bit of a tangent there. All good. If it's, if I think it's worth it, I think overall it it, uh, it was. Obviously, when I was doing the masters, there were days where I'm like this isn't worth it. Why am I doing this? I'm probably not even going to use it. But looking back, you have a little bit more time to figure out what you want and what you don't want. It's a nice stepping stone between an undergrad and uh, entering the workforce. As crazy as it is, I still feel like I've matured a little bit. Even though I graduated at uh, well, like 25, I still feel like I've matured a little bit since completing the undergrad. And another nice thing is it answered the what could have been question. You know, mm-hmm. I always think, oh, what if I would have made this choice? What if I would have done this other thing? I had the opportunity to do the masters and I did it and now I'll have it forever. You know, like no one can take that away from you. Mm-hmm. I might break into your
1: secret vault and take it. but other than that,
0: I... <laughs> Well, you can take the piece of paper, but you can't take away the experience, you know? Yeah. Well, said. And uh, last, like I proved to myself that I could do it. And there's no doubt in my mind now that I'm able to do something like that. You know, that it's one of the hardest things that I've done in my life. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really happy that I was able to accomplish that, you know? Going back to the whole Piang's thing, doing a thesis is worth one year of experience. So now I have, you know, it took two years to do the master's, but I'm still one year closer to getting that Piang's, which has been my goal for a long time.
1: Okay, I see.
0: That that kind of played into it a little bit when I was doing the master's. I kind of said, okay, well, if I really don't like it, at least I'm still, you know, a year up and I get a master's out of it. So it's it's kind of nice.
1: You know, I've struggled a lot with what you said about a minute ago about how you like prove to yourself that you could do it. Yeah. Is there a part of you that was trying to prove it to anybody else but yourself? Or was it purely intrinsic motivation that got you through it? To be honest, when I started the master's, my parents didn't really know what it was. Okay. Like,
0: so it was by no means to, like, please them. Like, they they really wanted me to start working, I think. Mm-hmm. So when I said, oh, I'm going to do a, another two years of school minimum, they were like, what, what, you, you just did a degree, mm-hmm. you know? So... I do really believe it was just for me. You can probably hear like I have a lisp. So sometimes people assume I'm not really, uh, competent at Mm -hmm. times. Growing up, I had a hard time, you know, right? Like I went to speech therapy for a few years. I had a hard time with English. So I feel like the first impression isn't always the best when you, when you meet me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think it's just something that I wanted to see that I could do in my life and and I was able to do it because there was no need for me to do it it's just i wanted to see if i could communicate with the the best of the best you know when you do a masters you're communicating directly with professors the top of their like top of their game like uh-huh. you're working with people that know this field of research better than anyone else and you have to be able to kind of talk with them about it and be able to communicate on a level that makes sense for them to be interested you know if you're just doing you know kindergarten stuff for the professors they're not going to be too interested in what you're doing but if you're actually like in a master's you're actually going to be doing i don't want to say cutting edge research but you're going to be doing research that's interesting for world leaders in the in that research field
1: yeah that's a that's a really good answer, Austin. I'm glad that you opened up about about your your Lisp and speech therapy and how this all ties into your desire to prove to yourself that you can be the best communicator possible. And you definitely are. Like that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you back on the show because it's just such a pleasure talking to you and listening to you speak. It really is. Um, oh, thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate and, that. Yeah, and so I mean, I I can't I can't compare right now to what it was like when we first met, but I was still enthralled back then, and even <laughs> even now, it's just a real treat. So I think you've definitely accomplish something there and can check that box for yourself so I hope that that serves you well moving forward I'm also happy to hear that you feel that the master's degree was worth it for you and that you did get things out of it again as somebody who withdrew from a master's degree I grappled with questions of like what am I realistically going to be able to take out of this if I don't continue in academia
0: yeah so I mean it kind of goes off what I I I think I mentioned it before like while I was doing the master's I had a very different view of it. You know, it was really hard to get done. Like it was one of the hard, like hardest things I've done in my life. So if you would have asked me this question like a month before I submitted my thesis, like, is this worth it? You would have gotten a way different answer, Jeremy. (laughs) And you know what? I love that. It was very hard. And you question yourself constantly. And you even question the work that you did. Like, was is good enough? Should I be writing about this? Does it even matter? Like, who cares about this? You know, there's like probably only 50 people in the world that would actually sit down and read what I'm
1: putting out, you know? Mm -hmm. I guess in, in that sense, intrinsic motivation is actually really important because you yeah. aren't gonna have these huge rippling effects out into the engineering ether if it's so concentrated if, if like it's it's a very niche topic like having a checkerboard of fans creating turbulent flows I mean it's not it's not everybody's wheelhouse
0: yeah I mean my, my thesis was more on the specialized side like there are more there are other theses that are more generalized and uh, maybe that helps with the uh, the motivation because you you know some theses certainly do make a difference I mean, I know of uh, another person who was doing a thesis who was working with communities up north to help them with centralized heating, and they were able to get a master's out of it, you know? They were doing, like, the energy analysis. So that, you're definitely making a difference. You're definitely motivated. But Mm -hmm. I think I knew that when I was done it, I'd look back on it fondly and look at the hard work that I put in and think, yeah, I did that. And, you know, like I said, no one's going to take it away from me. So now I think it's worth it. But... It's uh, It was definitely difficult at times. And then you, you throw in COVID to the mix and mm-hmm. it's a oh, little yeah. bit isolating because you're working on one project, you have one supervisor, your peers are like the other people in your lab group are maybe working on something similar, but not exactly the same. So there's not as much collaboration, whereas another good uh, comparison to industry, there's a lot more collaboration because they're kind of trying to help you learn and get you to the level that they're at. Mm-hmm. Like I maybe my experience has just been very positive at my workplace, but that's definitely how I feel. So
1: it's really nice to be supported, especially yeah. when you go from being part of a lab or having a, like a, a very close supervisor looking over mm-hmm. you. It it could be a total crapshoot. You have no idea what kind of management is gonna carry you through the beginning of your career when you get there.
0: True, very true. Yes, yeah. so it's For great, sure. and
1: you know you. Like you said, it could be a little isolating during the pandemic. I would say it could be a lot isolating. Like I remember (laughs) experiencing that early on. I started this very podcast because I felt isolated from my my cohort when I was in my master's. I just wanted to reach out to people and interview them to know what was even going on in my own department. For sure. You know, the world can feel very, very small. To maybe kind of branch out just a little bit. So you felt that the master's was worthwhile for you. Maybe we can explore this with a bit of trepidation, but would you recommend the engineering masters to engineers completing their undergrads at this point?
0: I mean, it depends what your uh, what your goal is. I mean, it's hard to just give a broad answer for everyone. I'd say if you have the opportunity to do it, if you have the grades and you have a connection with a supervisor, because you, you kind of need those things to start a masters, mm-hmm. I would say go for it. There are a lot of opportunities for funding. The reason why it's so difficult to just give a concrete answer, it's because there's so many factors. You have to factor what you want to do later in life. You have to factor your financial state. You know, if you're in a ton of debt, it's hard to continue doing a master's. So there, there are several things to consider. But I think overall, I mean, if you if you think you can do it, I would certainly recommend it. You learn a lot more about the problem solving process. And you, you prepare yourself really, really well for entering industry. I feel like I just feel prepared. You know, when I'm given an assignment at the job, I'm like, I know I'll learn how to do this. Mm-hmm. It's not that like you're looking around and you're so confused and you're like, I have no idea what, what's going on. Like, how am I going to like complete all of this work? You, you still feel kind of clueless, but after doing the masters, I feel like there's always a path to finding the solution.
1: Mm-hmm. I've heard that before. People who do graduate school learn how to learn independently to like a much higher yeah. degree than they do in an undergrad. And exactly. you're given very difficult problems to solve. And you eventually, if, if you graduate, you eventually figure out how to solve all of them. And there are many. Exactly. You know,
0: I was able to solve all of these problems and turbulence. I can certainly solve how to uh, calculate the head loss for a pipe, you know. Like, I can certainly learn how to do that. And now the only thing that's stopping me is time. I just need enough time to learn how to do my job to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. So doing the master certainly, I think it sets you up for success, but you don't have to do it in engineering, I feel. You don't need it to get a great engineering job if you're willing to put in the time to learn and really be committed to your, your
1: profession. Excellent advice. Thank you for keeping it open and broad there. And you're right. There are a million factors that contribute to anybody entering or leaving any degree or job. There's just too many different factors to even consider. So I appreciate you left it a bit open there as well. Every person's going to have a different experience. You did mention how you learn about the problem solving process throughout the master's. What did you learn about yourself? Oh, I learned that I'm horrible with
0: procrastinating. (laughs) (laughs) You and everybody else. In the undergrad, there's a lot of checks and balances. I mean, I procrastinated in my undergrad for sure, but having uh, concrete due dates for assignments helps you learn how to practice for the midterm. Having the midterm makes sure that you know half the content before you take the second half of the semester and do your final. So there's all of these kind of uh, milestones in place. Whereas in the masters, once you get past the lit review, it's free game. Like You, you can work as hard as you want or as little as you want, all, like, Most people have weekly meetings with their supervisors, Mm -hmm. and you can just say, oh, well, I did this, I did that, you know, I was busy doing this, and you just come up with these excuses until you actually have to set deadlines for yourself and actually, you know, follow through with that. In my undergrad, I was horrible for that. I'd always say, oh, I'm going to get this assignment done before the weekend, so I have all weekend just to relax. Every Sunday night, I was rushing to complete the assignment I was due on Monday. Yeah. And there are a lot of here. people, yeah, a lot of people, like, share that, uh, you know, that issue, the procrastination, and it doesn't go away, but you just become better at it. You you treat the deadline that you set for yourself more seriously, I feel. And then, you know, once you enter industry, you know, you, you have a, so many hours in a day, and I feel like procrastination doesn't become so much of an issue because you're dedicating time to it. But in the masters, you have to be kind of your own supervisor in a way you have to get these things done because it's a reflection of you.
1: Mm-hmm. In terms of like how you're working now, I, I know that hours are very open flexible during a master's degree. Like, are you working nine to five now?
0: Uh, yeah. So I'm very fortunate. We're at my company. If you complete all of your hours in the week, you can do half day Fridays. Okay. On Friday at noon, I'm, I'm, it's my weekend, basically, I start my weekend, but awesome. in order to do that, you have to do, you have to front load your week. So Monday through Thursday, I'll do uh, nine hour days. And then on Friday, I'll do like a four hour day. So okay. I kind of do extra during the week so I can enjoy my weekend a bit more. And while I'm working, you know, I'm like, I'm full focused on work. Like I want to get all my tasks done. So procrastinating hasn't really been an issue at work. Okay. But, because you
1: have these checkpoints, like you're saying, lots of small projects. There's always something that's getting done. So you feel that you're accomplishing something. I feel like that's really important when yeah. you're like self-directed, you, you need constant feedback and completion of tasks to feel like you're moving the needle and, and you're actually moving forward.
0: And, and that's a huge problem in a master's because you have this huge Mount Everest that you need to climb your thesis. Like it's one document. And once you're done it, you're, you're you get the degree, you know? Uh, It's a gross simplification, like there, there are checkpoints along the way, there are some, but you have to just climb that mountain. And the way that I was able to do it in the end was just splitting that large task into a million smaller tasks. So every graph that I made in MATLAB was a task towards the master's. You know, so today it's like, okay, well this section it's gonna focus on the turbulent kinetic energy. Okay, how can I break that up more? Okay, well I know I wanna write about this and I wanna relate it back to theory, so I have to include these equations. So I'll write out those equations and okay, it's gonna take me a while to process the data in MATLAB, so that's another task. So then instead of thinking about it as a whole section I'm breaking it up into, you know, okay, it'll take me half a day to work in MATLAB to get this graph. Okay, I'll take me another half a day to write it up. And then before you know it, you're kind of completing sections, and then you're completing chapters, and then you're looking at it from a high level saying, okay, well, should this chapter go before or after this one? And next thing you know, you
1: complete a thesis. Beautiful imagery there of this kind of like fractal nature of the <laughs> embedded levels and sections of a paper. That's how I that's how I've heard it being described before. I've never even really like read through an entire thesis before. I've I've skimmed them, but nah, they're, don't, they're, don't
0: don't don't waste your
1: time. They're quite daunting. Uh yeah.
0: There, there's a joke in grad school that the only people that are going to read your thesis are you, your supervisor and the reviewer and that's it.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I hope you enjoyed the, it.
0: I hope they, they enjoyed it and maybe the person that takes over the work for you, maybe they'll read it.
1: The more the merrier. I could put a link to your thesis in the show notes for if anybody wants to check it out, if they want to do that. And if if you, by the way, if you're listening right now and you do read it and you complete it, send me a message. I'll feature you on Instagram. We'll, we'll maybe fly you in from wherever you are. You'll meet Austin. <laughs> no promises. Depends where you live. If you live in Montreal, maybe. COVID dependent. We'll see where we are then. Very, very dependent. Forget everything I just said. Toss it out the trash. Read it if you want.
0: I'll see if they've already processed the thesis, if it's already posted. I know it takes them a few months to actually post it to the library site, but I'll be Mm -hmm. sure to send you the link.
1: Beautiful. Austin, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, helping me round off your story for the listeners. I am a committed Austin fan. (laughs) I've re-listened to our discussion already at least once in full and so this was a very exciting way to kind of put a cherry on top.
0: Great to hear. I'm happy to be here, and uh, it's been it's been great. Like the first time doing this podcast, I really didn't know how it was going to go, but I've uh, certainly enjoyed both of the podcasts. Now that we're wrapping up this uh, this second one, and I did put a link to that first podcast on my CV while I was applying to jobs. Awesome. So did that help me get the current job? Who knows?
1: Couldn't have hurt. <laughs> That is that is amazing. That's one of the beautiful bonuses of being on a show like this is that it's actually directly related to what you're doing. That's awesome. And anybody else, if you're listening and you're a graduate student and you think you got what it takes to sit in the seat Austin is sitting in and you got a funky thesis that you want to share with the world, you can find the show anywhere. Email abstractcast at gmail.com. Instagram at abstractcast. Austin, thank you so much. What a treat. Maybe I'll have you on when you retire. And we'll really get the whole picture of your entire career as it all panned out.
0: Maybe after I get the Pings, I'll come back and share my experience with that. There we go. How about it?
1: All right, Austin, have an awesome rest of your day. Thanks again for coming back. Be well. We'll talk to you later, Jeremy. Thanks. This isn't the time to make hard and fast decisions. This is the time to make
0: mistakes.
1: Take the wrong train and get stuck somewhere. Major in philosophy because there's no way to make a career out of that change your mind and change it again because nothing's permanent so make as many mistakes as you can that way someday when they ask what we want to be we won't have to guess we'll know